Spoilers Podcast. Okay, Spoilers and Good evening and welcome to Sunday afternoon film or cinema. I keep getting this wrong. What's the Sunday afternoon cinema? It is, isn't it? Sunday afternoon cinema. How many episodes have we done? Uh, seven. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Either way, either way, I should know the t- the title of my own fucking podcast. Um, right. So tonight, what are we doing? Yes, we are doing what I believe. I, I am actually going to turn this fan off because I'm convinced that one mic is picking it up and also it's annoying me. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up. Right, so, anyway. Should we start again? Yes. Hello! <laughs> Welcome to the very professional podcast with me, Christopher Windsor, and that bloke, Mike Larkin. <laughs> and this evening, shut up, and this evening we are covering what I think truly is a classic film you know we we've spoken about films that we like obviously over the past couple of weeks of the past couple of months but i really think this is the first classic we've come on to um and if we are talking about the quentin tarantino Squibfest reservoir dogs uh made in 1992 on basically no budget but had one of the most gripping storylines and one of the most gripping films that I've seen back then and probably for a long time. Even after all this time, it still has that it still has that impact on me personally. Absolutely. You know, um, I, mean, I, I just since the there, Chris. I was watching this before and I I didn't realize it was twenty five years old. Nineteen ninety two. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's weird I mean, isn't it, to it, think about that like that. It doesn't. It's not a film that looks twenty five years old. You know, you can watch some films from the eighties, nineties. Yeah, that yeah. have just aged terribly. Yeah, I think I think the reason for that is because I, I think it is timeless because there's very little to date it because so little actually happens. Um, you know, and and such it's, because it's such a contained film. Yeah, it, it doesn't really give you a sense of time with perspective perspective rather it could be any any given time i think i think that's the difference um yeah I mean, no, the, the no, only references you really have to time is when they're listening to the music from the 70s and even that's on a radio anyway so that doesn't really help you one, well, plus one it's called key billy super sounds of the 70s so exactly, it's obviously yeah. a nostalgia station it, it makes it distinctive um Okay, so just to just to talk about Reservoir Dogs, uh, you know, if, if you've not seen it, first of all, why the hell not? Because it's a fantastic film. But just to give a basic idea of this film, so um, Quentin Tarantino's masterpiece. It wasn't his first film, but it was certainly the film that put him on the map. It was. Um, well, it was his first film directing. No, it wasn't. Uh, his first film directing. Was and I'm already referring to IMDb. God, we're doing this quickly into the into the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I think his first film was my Benny's um, Benny's um, birthday or something, or my best friend's birthday. Oh, um, um, let's have a look. I mean, it's okay. not exactly a big film by any means, but well, have you ever seen it? Well, no, but if we're going to be technical about this, you know, we we need to get it right, don't we? Let's be honest. Um, 
Yeah, what did he do first? Um, what did he direct for? Why is my internet gone mad? Uh, uh, my best friend's birthday, it was written by him. Ah, uh, he didn't direct it, but he did write it. Um, but we'll go into his film history in a, in, in a while, because, let's face it, he's done a He's done a fantastic Oh, no, he job. did die for my best friend's birthday. Oh, he did? Uh, Apologies. I thought he did. He also directed a, a short in 1983 called Lovebirds in Bondage. I can't say I've heard of that. Um, I haven't, but I certainly want to watch it. No. But we'll go into Quentin's down to history a bit, because, frankly, it's huge. So, to give an idea of Reservoir Dogs, it's basically about a jewel store robbery that goes wrong in the biggest possible way. It's based on the 1987 Chinese film um, starring Yun Fat Chao, uh, Fat Chow, rather, uh, Lung Fu Fang Wan, uh, otherwise known as City on Fire. Now, I've not seen City on Fire in a very long time. It was a very good film, and I remember enjoying it. Um, but it's loosely based, Reservoir Dogs is loosely based on City on Fire. But to be fair, I think it would be fair to say that City on Fire and Reservoir Dogs is based on virtually every heist film there is out there to begin with. I mean, it's not exactly an original story, really, let's be honest. Um, well, I mean, is, is, are, are there many original stories these days, really? Um, uh, I can't think of a recent one that's really completely original. I mean, Let's call Michael Bay, see if he uh, knows. No, no, we are not, we're going to spend an afternoon not speaking of him. No, but you know what I mean. What, what, what I'm trying to say is that when Reservoir Dogs came out, it was obviously seen as a very original film. It was obviously a film that blew audience out of the water. And it, it is an original... It's a very good story, but it's not an original story in the sense of it's not an original idea. You know, no, it probably no. borrows from an awful lot of things. So, without wanting to give too much away, and to be fair, it's a very simple story. It basically starts out seeing a group of men whose names you do not know, aside from a couple of aliases, go and do a robbery. It all goes to hell. They end up in the middle of a warehouse, trying to decide who's the rat, and so it goes from there. The thing about this film that makes it so special is that very little actually happens. And yet it's not boring. You've got set pieces all over the place and the story told in a very jarred environment. I, I can't remember who said it, but I remember hearing someone, uh, yeah, a director, saying um, every film has a basic structure of A, B, C, but not necessarily in that order. And Quentin Tarantino has a way of taking that concept, making it his own, and doing a damn good job of it. I seem to remember we spoke about this um, some time ago, Mike, about the idea of watching Reservoir Dogs and, indeed, Pulp Fiction in the order that it was meant to be told and seeing how it would actually play out. Um, I, I seem to remember... I don't, the thing is, right, Reservoir Dogs and, indeed, Pulp Fiction is I don't remember feeling confused about what was going on. No, and that's, that's, that's Tarantino's uh, mastery... Is that he can jump from one section of the film to another, and you don't ever feel, you, you know, you don't have that moment of going, wait, what's happening now? You you're always aware that it's made that jump, and you're always kind of glad of it in a way. 
It, it doesn't feel jarring, does it? It doesn't make no. me think, well, well, hang on a sec. It's like, you know, not, not to give spoilers away about Pulp Fiction, but there's a very scene that I'm sure I'll remember that when one particular character happens to die and then he's alive and you don't think, well, he, he was dead a minute ago. Why is he alive now? It, you know what I, I mean? I think uh, the character that you're referring to there is Vic Vega, played by John Travolta. Well, I wasn't going to give spoilers away, but go ahead, ruin Pulp Fiction for everyone who's not seen it. Oh, come on. Well, I'm not ruining Pulp Fiction. I'm mentioning who the character and the <laughs> actor is. Well, no, it, it is worth bringing up that character and indeed that actor because that will become relevant as we go on. Um, okay, so where do you want to start on this? Do you want to start with the characters, or do you want to start on the basic setup of the film, the story, and how it how it's portrayed? Where, where do you want to start with this? Well, because... I mean, for me, I think I think Tarantino, when he sets out to write, to write this, I think he probably thought, right, I'm going to make a film with the, where every character is the coolest guy in the room, <laughs> including himself, including himself. Yeah. And ev- and everyone has really good lines. Oh god, it's so quotable, it's ridiculous. And I'm also going to have the best soundtrack ever. <laughs> I think they they I think that's all Tarantino probably thought when he wrote when he sat down to write it. Cool characters, awesome lines and cool soundtrack. Yeah. Because this film has got all three in in bunches. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of my favourite things really about the film is the interplay between um, Harvey Keitel and the Steve Buscemi character um, right at the beginning. You, you can tell that they were probably the most competent actors in this. You know, when when, when they're fighting and um, Mr. White turns around to Mr. Pink and says, you know what, George, you know, it's, I, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, I'll fucking shoot you in the head. And he's like... Um, you know, I'm, I'm the only one who's acting like a professional here. You're the one that's acting like a first-year fucking thief. And that was, on, oh, that was Mr. Pink to Mr. White. Uh, sorry, Mr. Pink, sorry. What did I say? You said Mr. White, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, that was Mr. Pink to Mr. White. And basically, him saying, look, I'm the fucking professional here. Grow up, effectively. You're acting like it's your first job. Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm not portraying in any way how great a line that was by Steve Buscemi. It's but it's beautifully delivered and you really get the feeling that these people know exactly what they're doing they know how to act and more than that they know how to act naturally yeah I mean this is, this is obviously a film where I don't think any of the actors in this had really worked together before which works for this movie because it's about a bunch of thieves who were working together for the first time yeah, they. Uh, the only connections you know about anybody having any idea who anyone is are the characters of Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Joe, and Nice Guy Eddie. And even Mr. Even Mr. White and Mr. Blonde don't know each other. They just know that both of them know, um, know Joe. And, and I, Nice Guy Eddie. Yeah, I mean, what was the relationship between Mr. White and Nice Guy Eddie? Because you know uh, they saw them together, but you know what was the what was the relationship there? Would you say? I I think they probably you know Mr. White, Mr. White seems to be a kind of thief for hire. I think. Yeah. Uh, they mentioned in this uh, his relationship with the, uh, oh, it wasn't Dakota, but it was it was Montana or something like that. Oh, uh, Alabama. 
Alabama. Yeah. And that, of course, references another of another story that Tarantino wrote but didn't direct, True Romance. Oh, yes. Um, so he's, he's that kind of character that I think he's existed throughout the Tarantino multiverse. What, what I also not noticed... Not necessarily been seen. What I also noticed was that there was one point where um, Mr. White... Sorry, uh, Mr. White and Joe are talking about the diamonds that are being sold in the heist. And Joe says, you know, can you put them through Marcellus? And I didn't catch the surname. I know he didn't say Marcellus it wasn't, Wallace. It wasn't Marcellus Wallace, but, but it was Marcellus. But he did say the word Marcellus, didn't he? Yeah. So it's highly possible that they were speaking about Marcellus Wallace who would go to be something Pulp Fiction. Let me just see, because I'm going to look up the quotes now. Because <laughs> let, let's just let's just give this away. In fact, you know what? Let's just give this away right now. Basically, it was indicated that between Reservoir Dogs and between Pulp Fiction, the Harvey Keitel character of Mr. White and the character of Vincent Vega in the um, Pulp Fiction were effectively... Um, sorry, the Michael Madsen character, sorry, of Mr. Blonde... Is known as Vic Vega in Pulp no. Fiction. He's Vincent Vega. It was implied that they were related. No, they are related in Tarantino's multiverse. The, the brothers and Tarantino actually wanted to make a Vega that, Brothers yeah. movie, which would have been interesting to do. I mean, do you think the Marcellus Wallace thing was actually there, or do you think it was just coincidental? I think you know this is LA. Every you know there are gonna be there's gonna be more than one black dude called Marcellus. Possibly, possibly, yeah. Um, I'm I'm trying to find the name on IMDb now because uh, I'm on my phone doing this. It's gonna <laughs> pro- probably take fucking ages. Um, to be honest with you, I think you'll have a very difficult time trying to find that one. Um, trying to find that specific quote. I probably will, but you know, we'll, we'll carry on talking about the movie. Yeah. So as as we're talking about dialogue. Quentin, I love you, man. You're a very good writer. You're a very good director. But rather like Michael Moore, stay behind the camera. You oh, know, come on. He's got shit accents in Django and Shane's look, legendary. I don't blame Tarantino for being the character he was in Pulp Fiction because that was a wonderful character and he had great lines. I don't blame him for wanting to be in front of the camera as if Rose of Wild Dogs and giving his speech of Like a Virgin because it is wonderful bits of dialogue. But Quentin, I'm sorry, you can't act. And and what I love the most about Quentin Tarantino in this, actually, and I only picked up on this today, was um, at the very start of the film to the wonderful song Little Green Bags, in the opening credits, you see the all the characters walking towards the car, and they're all looking cool, they're all looking suave, sophisticated, ready to go on the job. And the Quentin Tarantino character has a massive grin on his face. And I can only think that it's Quentin Tarantino thinking, I'm walking down the road with some of the greatest actors in the world in my film! Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because that was that was a, that was a schoolboy grin. 
It was, wasn't it? I'm glad you I'm glad you picked up on it too, and it's just not me reading something into it. It was so clear that he was thinking I mean that's that's pretty He's got Harvey Keitel, who arguably at the time was one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. And indeed Michael Madsen, one of the And Michael Madsen. And he's also got Sim Roth. Yes, it, yeah. he was fairly unknown at the time, but Sim Roth is a damn fine actor. Okay, Steve what? Buscemi, really? It's just, again, Steve Buscemi, damn fine actor, American hero, in fact. I mean, the the thing is, and this is almost a problem with this film, and I know it might sound strange me saying this. There are too many good people in this film to talk about. There's too many good lines from these people to talk about. Often when you look at films, you think, well, was it really that good of a cast? There are one or two good lines, maybe one decent actor, and yeah, you kind of look at it and go, it's not as good as you remember. But in this case, I really think it was as good as we remembered. It it definitely was. I mean, I I watched it today, and... you know, the chills down the spine for where the little green bug stars are playing. Yeah. Because it was like, okay. You know, it's been probably 10, 15 years maybe since I've watched this all the way through. And it was like watching it for the first time. <laughs> and it, really, it, it was that good of a movie. And I'd honestly forgotten a lot of what happens. Really? Like, like, like Sim Roth's. You know the story he tells us about being in the in the bathroom with the cops. Oh, the commode story. Yeah. The commode story. I mean, what a great scene! <laughs> what an absolutely fantastic scene! And I'd forgotten all about that, and it's a pivotal scene because it shows kind of who who that character really is. Absolutely. I mean, for those who haven't seen it, the um, the one scene is split up into three separate locations. You've got one location where Tim Roth is speaking with, uh, I can't remember, it's never really said who the he, character is, but I think it's called Holdaway, um, who is another undercover cop who is working with... Spoilers! Um, yeah, indeed, spoilers. Um, <laughs> who is working with him. And... They're talking about this story. He says, look, if you're going to do this, if you're going to go undercover, you need to know what you are going to say to these people. You need to be a natural. It needs to come off your tongue constantly. Then it switches to the Mr. Orange Tim Muff character speaking with um, a nice guy, Eddie, Joe, and Mr. White in a club about the story that's going on. And then it switches to a bathroom scene where you see him in a room full of cops and a load of dogs and basically saying, this is how it went down. And it's all pulled together masterfully and it's just beautiful, every single scene. And there are no there are no real cuts between the different places. No, you don't notice any cuts. Absolutely, and I mean, what I love the most about, especially the um, especially the scene in the bathroom, is when you are circling around um, when you're circling around the Tim Roth character, and you can just see the passion on his face, and it's it's beautifully directed. I, I, I was going to save this um, later for on uh, later for later on rather that's not a complete sentence, <laughs> um, but I'm going to say this now. I think this is a film that anybody who either is interested in film and cinematography, in the sense of studying it, 
wanting to make films as a as a professional career or simply just wants to see how it's done this should be shown in every single art college out there it's to me it's no surprise that this is up there with Bugsy Malone in the sense of people who want to do it as stage plays because it is such a damn good film to make it into a stage play I was talking to my dad about this about a year ago and I was saying that I felt it deserved to be in, if not the top 50 greatest films of all time, then at the very least, the top 100 films of all time. And he was like, ah, how can you say that? You know, it, it, it's, all, it's all swearing and blood and guts and blah, 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 blah. And it made people sit up and pay attention. Yeah, I mean, and he's right. But underneath that, you have a fantastic story, a fantastic script. And some wonderful bits of filmmaking, all made on virtually nothing. I mean, we'll go back to the film students now. And <laughs> um, for those of you out there who were thinking, "Oh, I've I've not got enough, you know, move, money to make a movie," this film had such a low budget that the suits everyone wore in the film were their own suits. They wore their own clothes. Even even Chris Penn, that horrible tracksuit he had on. Hang, on, hang on a second. To give Chris Penn his dues, you know, the dearly departed Chris Penn, respect to him, it was a shell suit. And shell suits were huge in the Sorry. 90s. I apologise, that terrible track, not, that terrible shell suit. Do not say that against shell suits. Admittedly, everybody knew that if you wore a shell suit, you died. It's as simple as that. Anybody it's like being a red shirt in Star Trek. And anybody who grew up in the 90s will remember the video they got shown as a kid where if one match went near a shell suit top, it went up in flames. Yeah. That's just how it worked. Actually, you know what? It was a terrible shell suit. Now that I think about it, it looked fucking stupid. It was. Sorry, but, but they were his own... I mean, don't get me wrong, it was 1991, so, you know, kind of forgivable for that, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this it was such a low budget that the they, sh- they wore their own clothes. They didn't have permission to shoot in traffic. So when Steve Buscemi um, forced the woman out of the car and drives off in the car, you could only do that when the traffic lights were green because they couldn't get police assistance for traffic control. I get the feeling that this film was probably shot in a very short period of time in basically it 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 almost makes me think it was effectively made like okay we happen to have this location now and there's virtually no one about so let's just go ahead and do it oh absolutely i think this was guerrilla film making out its finest to be honest I mean, I could quite believe that the opening scene were in the we're in the we're in the where they are in the cafe. I'll get out if it kills me. When they are in the cafe, Quentin probably went to these people and said, "Look, we need this location. We don't have a lot of money. If we give you some money, can we just come and film here, please? You know, or at least that would be my perspective on how they did it. In terms of the warehouse, well." 
there were probably many, many abandoned warehouses, and they probably just said, look, can I just go and film here for half a day, for a couple of days? And the other scenes, well, you could film on any city streets in the world. You know, they, they were probably sets. They probably weren't real streets to begin with, or at least maybe, well, maybe they were. But what killed this film, as far as its budget's concerned, was the music. Actually, no. It was. It, I think this was probably a fairly low budget for the music, because no, it was, was all film. It was all songs that Tarantino had on his jukebox at home. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you have to pay for them. I mean, don't be wrong. He has. He has to pay for the licensing, but you know. I, I seem to remember him spending having spent an awful lot of money. I, I remember hearing about this um, to be able to get the likes of little green bags and um, stuck in the middle with you. I think that's where most of the budget went, just trying to get um, the rights to be able to use those songs. Um, there's an awful lot of films out there that use songs that you could probably say, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter if we don't have this particular music, but I can't imagine this film without that piece of music, without those pieces of music, rather. It wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't... If, if this hadn't had such an iconic sound, we wouldn't be talking about it now. I mean, can, can, can you imagine if in the opening scene, when they're walking down the middle of the road, um, I'm trying to think of a... I'm trying to think of a... Hit me, baby, of, one more time. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Or, um, <laughs> or, or other... Yeah, um, or other... Yeah, I, I, I can't timeless. think... Yeah, I can't think of any other. I can't think of any other examples. But yeah, it just wouldn't have worked. It's it's as simple as that. Um, same with um, Steeler's Wheel, course, stuck in the middle of you, rather. Um, when they are, you know, in the in the famous torture scene. Um, another one that stuck out for me was Full for Love. It wasn't used for a long period of time, but it it was a really good song. And I don't know about you, Mike, but the 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 songs have that element of you can't help but sing along the minute you hear <laughs> little green bags you're singing along to it the minute you hear stuck in the middle of you you're singing along clicking your I've, fingers loving every second i, of I was it. gonna say i i was singing along to every single song in this movie and even though i couldn't remember where they were placed i remember all the words to them <laughs> even fool for love and that's a great track i think i'm, I'm gonna get that on my phone because it's actually a really good track I mean, I, I I used to have the soundtrack on CD, and it was a great soundtrack to listen to. I, it had what kind of shorts, except from the movie. Include I, I had that on tape, because I'm more old school than you. I, you're more old school? Yeah, because yeah. I, I had it on audio cassette. Right. But, it, you know, it had, the, obviously, the famous Madonna speech as well. And uh, that yes, was just did, worth listening it, yeah. to over and over again. <laughs> and a little interesting note here, by the way. Uh, after the movie got released, Madonna actually liked the movie, but refuted Quentin Tarantino's interpretation of her song "Like a Virgin." She sent him a copy of her erotica album, signed to Quentin. It's not about dick; it's about love. Dicks, 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 dicks. 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 I don't. I don't care what Madonna said. I think Quentin, Quentin Tarantino had it right. It's about a lot of dicks. Yes, it is. Many, many dicks. <laughs> and who doesn't love a good dick? 
I don't know, um, possibly Mrs. Nixon. Possible. Let's not get political. So, um, right, let's just get, let's just start talking about the characters because that is going to take up probably most of the time, and then we we can carry on to the rest of the story and also the ending that has an awful lot of people arguing what even happened there. Okay. I'm gonna gonna tell people now, Chris. We may as well tell them because it is Sunday afternoon cinema, and this might take a while. If you're busy at all, if you want to have your dinner, pause this, go ahead and eat, do whatever you need to do, because we are gonna be here for a while. This is a movie we both adore, and I don't even know how long we're gonna go on for because we're not taking any breaks, we're not pausing, and we are gonna do this until it's done. <laughs> Okay, so let's start with the initial meeting of the characters and the initial the initial introduction of the characters. One thing that really makes this film quite different to every other film out there, really, is its informality of the introduction of the characters. Normally, when you see a film like... Uh, normal films, rather, they have massive entrances. You know exactly who they are the minute you start watching this film. Uh, in, in those films, rather. In this, as mentioned before, there is Quentin Tarantino and everybody else basically sat around a, sat around a table having breakfast like normal businessmen. You don't Like normal that. people. Yeah. Uh, you, you and, it, and that's what strikes me about this scene, is the normality of it. It's a, it's a conversation anyone could have. And it's, it's the type of conversation, conversation me and you have had. Yeah. And, 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 it, and it is wonderful. I mean... Uh, you know, you've got um, you've got Quentin Tarantino discussing um, what Like a Virgin is about in a very in a very wonderful way. You've got Mr. White and Mr. Pink arguing um, about whether you should tip someone. You've got Joe Cabot Joe Cabot rather standing there going, Joe, Joe, Tony Joe, Tony Joe. <laughs> And you're thinking, why is John, this old Toby man? John. Why, why is this old man sitting there? Is he? Is he? Has he got Alzheimer's or something? And it's just really wonderful. And then you've got um, so basically they're discussing tipping. This this is one of the main content points of contention, and where you learn about the characters a little bit. Yeah, where you learn about kind of who they are as people. Yeah, Mister Pink says, "I'm not going to tip. Why should I tip?" These people are just doing their job. You know, their paid minimum wage isn't that enough. And Mr. White, who turns out to be not a particularly nice person, says, hang on a second. These people work hard for their money. You should give them tips. It's like, look, I don't mind tipping if they do something special. It's just tipping out of habit. That's what I don't agree with. Yes, tipping for the sake of tipping. Because you meant to tip. And to be fair, I kind of agree with Mr. Pink. I do. It's hard not to, because he makes a good case. He does. I mean, as he points out, you know, you, you don't tip someone in McDonald's. They're still serving you food. What? What's the yeah, difference? But, you know? but, but society says it's okay to tip this group of people, but not this group of people. And in one of in one of just the few many great lines where Mr. White says, maybe they're just too damn busy. And Mr. Pink turns around and says, too damn busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. 
Yeah. Now, I know that's harsh. It is. It's very nasty. I've, I've done waiting on for a living. It is not an easy job, and it's, it's not a job I ever want to go back to. It's not an easy job, and I've got utmost respect for anyone who does it, because I've done it myself when I was much, 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 much younger. It, it's and it's yeah. I mean, I've never worked in McDonald's, thankfully, and I would not no, want no. to. People seem to have this idea that McDonald's is an easy job. I don't think it's easy by one by any stretch of the imagination. I, I think it's horrible. I did um, I did security at McDonald's years ago. Yeah, it's far from an easy job. Yeah. I, I so, I mean, while they do insult McDonald's, kind of insult McDonald's stuff in this. By saying, you know, you don't sip the stuff at McDonald's. Stuff at McDonald's work damn hard. They do. They're I... a, McDonald's are actually a very good employer to work for, though, believe it or not. But we won't get into that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what we basically see, though, um, in... Uh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So, basically, what we see in this scene, just through this conversation, is the different characters and what they're like. We have Mr. Pink, who is a self-involved man who doesn't want to give money away if he can avoid it, and basically only cares about himself. Fair play. Can't blame him for that. Mr. White... One oh, of he's his... a thief. He works damn hard for his money. Yes, he does. He works hard <laughs> for the money. Um, Mr. White is someone who... He's your typical upstanding criminal. You yeah. Know, he's a bad guy. But deep down... But he's the kind of bad guy you want on your side. Yeah, you know, he's the sort of bloke that, you know, you like him, but you probably wouldn't want to get drunk of him because, well, you He'd don't know what alley you're going to end up in, you know? And then the other character that you've got that enters this conversation um, about the whole system of tipping is uh, the character of Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth. And what I love about this scene is it shows Mr. Orange for who he is. And I just want to do a bit of a, a, a quote here, where Joe says, Hey, who didn't throw in a buck? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink? Why not? He don't tip. He don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? He don't believe in it. Shut up! And it's basically Mr. Orange. Grassing him up? No, no, no. No, it's not even grassing him up. It's not even grassing him up. It's Mr. Roy saying, oh, uh, Joe, Joe, you're the boss. I'm going to sack up to you. Oh, oh, oh. And Joe does not have one of it. He's like, shut the fuck up. I can see right through you. You're a scumbag. Except, here's the thing, though. He's not a scumbag. He's... He is. He's a it's... suck up. He is your prototypical, oh, I am so desperate to be one of the cool kids. That I I have to say these things. No, no one likes people <laughs> like that. Anybody who sits there saying that sort of thing wants to be smacked in the face because it's like <laughs> you you're just being a dick for the sake of being a dick. Oh come on, you're gonna smack Tim Roth in the face for well, for, basic, not, for not, basically being true to his character. Not necessarily Tim Roth. You know, Tim Roth, <laughs> Tim Roth is a cool guy who's not afraid of anything. But what a dick! Honestly, I cannot get on board of that character. I hate him. I hate him even at the end. When he, you know, when he met his final demise, it was like, you know what? I'm kind well, of okay with that, actually. We can't, we can't discuss that yet. We'll have to discuss that later, no, because, as you yet. say, 
It's a bit of a bone of contention among fans of the film. It is. So, yeah, Mr. White, he is your typical bad guy who has... um, He has ethics. He knows what he's about, you know. He... Yes, he's a he's a nasty piece of work. He's a team player, though. Yeah, he is, and and at least he has a certain amount of scruples about him. You know, he, he's he's kind of one of those. He's kind of one of those old school gangsters who knows where the line is drawn. Yeah, he's he actually yeah. You just put me in mind there. He is an old school gangster. He's more. He's more of the like the Kray Twins type of era, yeah. Than you know, than anything else. I mean, he reminds me of, and I know um, a, f- a film that both you and I like um, because you happened to see the post when you came around to my, f- uh, my flat a couple of weeks ago. Um, Stand up guys, yeah. Where these people, and indeed Mr. White, there is a code of ethics almost. Yeah, you when, only screw, you know you only screw people over who deserve it. You don't yeah. screw over the little guy because kind of we were the little guy once is the is the kind of code. Yeah, yeah. And you know I've I've got to agree with that. There's there is there is a kind of stand up thing about that where they they say you know we'll only screw over people who can afford it. And there was a speech in Reservoir Dogs where they're talking about you know kind of what happens if. If this happens, um, Mr. White himself says, you know, insuring, you know, stores like these are insure the ass. Um, nobody's going to give you any trouble because it's just not worth it. They're going to get all the money back. Although there is also the scene where um, Mr. White's talking to Mr. Pink and he turns around and says, you know, did you shoot anyone? Like, only cops. No real people? No, only cops. Yeah, and I love the I love the way he says that. But everything about Mister White is just cool. Not as cool as Mister Bond, but he's fairly cool. I mean, it's Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel is the man. <laughs> Apart from those god awful insurance adverts. Well, he's going to make a living somehow. Not, not like that. <laughs> but I, I'd, thing... ra- I'd honestly rather him go out on Rodale Drive and sell his bum for money. <laughs> Uh, but one thing I did like, and I completely forgot about this until I watched it again, but it was something that I was trying to do years ago, and don't tell me you didn't try to do it, Mike, because god damn it was cool. And it was the trick with the um, with the Zippo lighter, where he was trying to, he was trying to um, get it going. Click it on with his fingers? Yes! See, I can't click my fingers. So... Oh, oh well. Yeah. So it's it's not a trick I ever tried to do. Yeah, but goddamn, it's cool. Isn't it's it? cool. It's it is cool as fuck. And yeah, for that reason alone, I tried to learn how to click my fingers, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> I was fucking devastated about it. So going from one extreme to another, let's talk about the scary son of a bitch that is Michael Madsen. Mister Blonde. Mister Blonde, who. At one stage in his career, played a very nice stepfather to a bratty little shit who decided to make friends with a fucking whale. You really? couldn't trust him to be... Really? What? What do you he... mean, really? Are we talking about the film I'm thinking about? Probably. 
There's not many films with a whale in them. Free William. Free Willy, yes. He was the father in that. He was the stepdad. Excuse me, I refuse, I refuse, I refuse to go with shortened names. Free William. <laughs> he was called Free Willy, but okay. If you want to dispute the name of the actual film, then fine. We'll do that. God damn it, it's Sunday. We should be formal. No, we sh- shut up. Anyway, he was, yeah, he was the stepdad in that. He's just a scary bastard, Michael Madsen in general. I don't care how nice of a guy he probably is in real life. Well, you know who his sister is? Uh, no. If you've seen the the classic horror movie Candyman. You know, I've never seen Candyman. His sister is actually an actress herself uh, called Virginia Madsen. Right, is she any good? She's she's brilliant. Um, She's probably... Let me just see, because I'm going to IMDb her quickly. And she's probably been in the loads that you've seen. It's just that they don't particularly look Sorry. anything like each other. It's not like Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal, who look identical. <laughs> you leave Jake um, Gyllenhaal alone, I like him as an actor. Uh, very fine actors, but they just, yeah. You kind of go, is it okay to fancy her because it, she looks like him? Okay, uh, I'm just going through selected filmography. Okay. Um, we're gonna have to go back a bit, maybe. How far back? Uh, well, I mean, she's 55, so she was in the Haunting in the Connecticut. Wasn't that terrible as well? Number 23. Uh, Sideways. Have you seen Sideways? I haven't. Oh god, that was awful. She was in that. Yeah. That was not in the least bit funny. How that was named the funniest film of the year is beyond me. It was a slow year. Uh, She's been in Frasier. She's been in Frasier, The Haunting. That was a terrible movie. But but we're not here to talk about her. We're we're here to talk about Michael Madsen. Yes, yes, quite. Michael Madsen, scariest motherfucker on the block. Although we're not, though. We're really here to talk about the character because I don't want to get too much into the actual actors today. Let's actually stick to the characters because they are... The thing about this film that makes it so good is despite the fact that you have very little knowledge of the background of the characters... You still absolutely love them. I love the interplay between Mr. White and Mr. Blonde. You know, when when they're in the um when they're in the warehouse and they're ready to tear each other's throats out, and they're just beautiful. They are just uh, really good together. I mean, you've got you've got that great line where uh, Michael Madsen, just v- full of menace, just turns around and says, "You're gonna bark all day, little doggy." Are you gonna bite? No, but that's the thing. He doesn't. He doesn't say it menacingly. It's more like, are you gonna bark like a log or are you gonna bite? He's trying to say it in a way of, look, I've got your number. I'm tougher than you. And you know it. And I don't have to raise my voice to be scary. Because you are scared of me. And that's what makes him so good. He doesn't have to he doesn't have to raise his voice to be threatening. He just is. It's... Yeah, he's, I mean, let's face it, he's already he's the scariest motherfucker in this movie by a long chalk. <laughs> and it's because it's because you've already heard about what he's done. Yeah. Previously in the movie, which happened off screen about how he's gone off the reservation and killed all these all these cops. 
and you go, wow, this this is one scary hombre, scary hombre. <laughs> and that's that's what kind of makes him so effective. Is is that you go, shit, this guy's a bit nuts. If these guys are scared of this this dude, and they're all professional hardened criminals, what chance have the rest of us got? I mean, it's, you know, it's it's the great line from which says, listen, kid, I'm not going to bullshit you, all right? I don't give a good fuck what you know, what you don't know. I'm going to torture you anyway, regardless. Not to get information. It's amusing to me to torture a cop. You can say anything you want, because I've heard it all before. All you can do is pray for a quick death, which you ain't going to get. And then one of the most famous scenes that this film is known for occurs, except you never see it. And that's that's the great piece about this movie. I remember when this came out in this country. I got banned. The BBFC banned it outright. Not surprised. And it was because people were saying about the the ear scene, mm-hmm. um, and saying how how vile and graphic it was. And then obviously it got released finally on on VHS. And I remember my dad saying to me, I was I was probably 15 years old at the time when they came out on VHS. My dad gave me money and saying, do me a favour, go to Blockbuster and buy a copy of Reservoir Dogs because I want to see this film. <laughs> and we're talking 22 years ago now. So he was going off kind of the, you know, the hoopla that I've been in the press about. This film's being banned. Totally mail. Yeah, probably, or The Guardian. One, hey, leave, one of hey, them. You leave The Guardian alone. The Guardian is a great left centre uh, uh, liberal yeah, democratic programme. Yeah, it would have been, been the Daily Mail and the Sun, yeah. let's face it. There we go, let's get it right. Anyway, went down, got the movie. Absolutely loved it the first time I saw it. 15 years old. And me and my dad sitting there afterwards going, why was that banned? Honestly, well, but... By that point, I'd seen movies that that hadn't been banned and I thought probably should have been. And that was one I could never work out because it never shows the scene it got banned for. And the reason for that is it couldn't get the special effects right. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, in a weird way, I'm glad they didn't show the scene. Not because I'm squeamish by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I've seen some horrible films in my time, including the most recent uh, film called Raw. But I'm glad they didn't show it because it made it that much more effective. And what I also loved, and it's a very small thing, but I loved it when they panned away from, um, from the cop and Mr. Blonde to an entrance and in writing it said watch your head now i don't know if he put it there deliberately but it always makes me laugh yeah i, I, I don't know if it I, I mean this looks like it was just a you know a random warehouse he picked yeah you know because it, it was empty and it was available i yes. think that's probably that's probably the two main reasons they shot there and yet still had running water and running electricity well, we let's not get into that for now. <laughs> um, okay, so do we have anything more to say about Mr. Blonde before we move on to Mr... Actually, let's go on to Mr. Pink from Mr. Blonde. Have you got anything more to say against Mr. Blonde? Um, I mean, by far the coolest character, really. He, you know, but at the same time, 
you, he's, he's the kind of dude you'd want on your side in a fight. <laughs> you just wouldn't want to be in a position to get into a fight at, anyway if you were in his company. What do you think they would have done with a, um, a Vega Brothers film, as it were, if they made had something if they if they had done something about Vic and Vincent Vega, how do you think I that don't know. Because I don't know because it couldn't have. I mean, it could have possibly bridged the gap between kind of um, dogs and and fiction. They're two very different characters, in my opinion. You know, Vince Vega is a very laid back, very cool, very dude. cool collectors. You know, he he doesn't seem especially. Um, he, he doesn't seem to go so sociopathic. Yeah, he, he seems very calm and collected, whereas Vic Vega is just... He's a psychopath. Yeah, you know, when when he says, you know, he, he went around shooting off in the middle of the, in the store, you don't do that. Um, you know, you can't, work, you can't work with a psychopath like that. And they're absolutely right. You can't work with someone that unpredictable. Um, whereas, whereas Vincent Vega... You know, on the other side, in, in fiction, you know, he shoots shoots Marvin in the back of the car. <laughs> you and shot like, Marvin in the head. I didn't uh, do it on purpose. Uh, and he's really regretful. He's like, he's like shit, man. He's a hit man <laughs> who doesn't like killing people. You know, he accidentally shoots someone and he's full of remorse. Well, no, I, I don't, and I don't want to go on to Pulp Fiction too much because God knows we do, we need to cover that at some stage as well. Um, I think, I think it's more of a case of he has a job to do, and he doesn't have any particular interest in the people that he's being told to go and kill. But he doesn't want to just kill pill, just kill people randomly. Did you just say kill Bill? Almost. I think I had it in my mind because of Michael Madsen being in um, Kill Bill as the character, basically, of Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Um, which he effectively is. Um, you know, I can't remember the link there. I mean, the, you know, so we talked about the um, the viewer skew universe um, a few, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. These series of films in Quentin Tarantino make the view askew universe, view askew averse, easy to follow. There are so many rabbit holes that you could go down just yeah. between three of um, Quentin Tarantino's film films. Rather, I mean, the only film that really doesn't have any connection with any other um, is probably uh, what's Jackie one Brown. About? No, um, what's the one set in World War Two or World War One with um, Inglorious Bastards? Yes, as far as I know, that has absolutely no link to. Oh no, no, there are links. Are there? I mean, I've only yeah. seen it once. I didn't particularly get on board with it. Um, okay, the links are the Red Apple Tobacco. Yeah, but that's a spurious link. No, no, because they all, they all are set in the same universe, and these, mm. these, are the, these are the clues that it's all part of the same universe. It's the yeah. Red Apple Tobacco. Yeah. What else? Uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to think. Let me, let me just see. I'm going to have to look this up now, you bastard. But, but I think, I mean, would you agree with what I'm saying in the sense of that they're much deeper than the Viewer's Skewverse? Um, I, th- you know. I think, to be honest, I don't think the Viewer's Universe is really meant to be that deep. Well, true. It's about um, dick and fart jokes. 
Um, to be fair, with know, the occasional deep, deep insightful speech by Kevin Smith, by, by Mr. Bob, yes. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, sorry, I'm just sorry, folks. I'm walking through IMDb, and again, I'm on my phone. So, do you not have a laptop? I do have a laptop, but Why don't it's you on your laptop because reasons. Such as? I'm, I'm opening it up now. On your laptop? On my laptop. Well done! You've learned how to use a browser! Christ. Fuck you. He used to do internet support, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and there's a reason I hate the internet. <laughs> there isn't, there's a reason I love the internet. Porn. Yeah. Let's not get into that. I didn't say that. You didn't need to. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, are we are we are we done with Mr. Blonde? Uh, yeah, we're done with Mr. Blonde. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about Mr. Mr. Orange. We're going to go with Mr. Orange next, then. Okay, we've already said spoilers, so you know what? I'm not even going to tread carefully anymore. Fuck it. Don't worry. If you've not seen this film, then and I've ruined it for you. I apologize. I'm sure I said spoilers at the start of the film sorry the start of the podcast and i'm fairly certain it's in the preamble that i put onto the start of the podcast as well okay so mr orange is the undercover cop who is working within these groups of thieves who is basically trying to make a name for himself by bringing down joker bot and basically saying look this heist is going to go on i'm on the inside i know the deal let's go it's never made clear at the beginning anyway that Mr. Orange is necessarily the undercover cop. You don't know that he is um, at the beginning, but you do get fed information that he is indeed the undercover cop. And I, I think there are nods, and as you said before, it's it's Mr. Orange at the, at the beginning of the scene, where he stands up and rats out, if you will, Mr. Pink. Um, remind me, sorry. In, in the dying scene. You know, he, he didn't throw in a buck. Oh, no, no, I still think it's him just being a dick and wanting to suck up to Joe. And, I, th- and, I think and as well as that, I think it's him being a cop. And I think that there are heavy, heavy hints. Maybe a little. Maybe a little. I mean, I'm not sure. I uh, No, I, I, mean, I, I could be wrong, you know, but that's, that's my take on it anyway. Um... So, with the Mr. Orange character being this undercover cop, he does bring the very human side of Mr. White out and causes an awful lot of a disagreement between Mr. Pink, Mr. White, nice guy, and a Joe. He doesn't do a lot, to be fair, for part of this film. He basically just sits there in a pool of his own blood, whining, because um, he's been shot. So, I guess you would whine, really. But then you also see the background scenes, as we talk about with the commode scene, where he is discussing the fact, you know, of how, how is he going to handle this as a cop, you know, he, he's going to be cool, he's going to be calm, he's going to be collected. And did you almost get a sense of his English accent when he was talking? I think, I think the, the way hints, you know, um, as to, I, I mean, I don't... he is British, isn't he? He, he is fully British, yeah. Um, I, let me just have a look at Tim Roth because I'm not sure what he'd done really before this in Hollywood I don't think he'd done much 
I can't believe this was his first film. I, mean, I don't think it was his first film, but I don't think he'd done, done a massive lot. Um, uh, actually, he, he seen No, he did a hell of a lot, actually. I mean, I don't know. I've not heard of any of the things that he was in, but he's done quite a bit one way or the other. Um, you know. uh, let's see. Hey, he's the same height as me. Didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, he's certainly been active. Again, it, you know, I'm not saying it's things I've heard of, but... I mean, a lot of these are UK, a UK TV series. In fairness, yeah, yeah. So we'll kind of ignore those, um, or British films. In fact, in the case of the Cut the Thief for His Wife and Her Lover, which I didn't realise he was in, <laughs> his first real American TV credits, uh, credit at all. Sorry, seemed to be Tales from the Crypt. He was in one episode in 1991. And he was in something called Jumping Out the Boneyard the same year. And then it's Reservoir Dogs. What's that, sorry? That just sounds pornographic. Jumping Out the Boneyard? It does actually, yeah. Oh, when you did um, Everyone Says I Love You by Woody Allen. I've always wanted to see that. That was a quite an interesting uh, film, but anyway, let, but let's not get too much onto the to Tim Roth himself because we always do this. Um, let's talk about Mister Orange in the character. What did you think of him in general? Because he's, you know, I think he plays the undercover very well. I I, th- I think the fact that you don't realise he's an undercover cop until it's actually, you know, brought up in the movie. Yeah. And it kind of sho- at that point it kind of shoves it into your face. This is, this, you know, to these guys, to these bad guys, this dude is really the bad guy. I mean, he's he's not a he's not a bad guy, but to them, uh, it's, it's even mentioned in the movie. We need to find out who the bad guy is here. Who's the rat? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know he's. He's the kind of honourable one among the thieves, if you will. Is he the one there trying to bring them down? Is he uh, honourable, though? Because he has no qualms taking out... I mean, wh- whatever you think about Mr. Bond as a character, he has got no qualms of killing him dead on the spot when you could have just injured him. Ah, uh, but come on, the guy who's going to kill one of his colleagues... Uh, yeah, but, yeah, but he could have shot him in the stomach... Oh, we could have, you know, we could have wounded him. Yeah, but this is Mr. Blonde. Would wounding him have worked? And also, he really should have got his facts straight about the story about uh, that was going on. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but his story was stupid. You know, he said, you know, um, he was going to kill the cop, then he was going to kill me, and then he was going to kill you when you got in, so I had to take him out. And obviously... Um, nice guy Eddie doesn't believe this and calls him out on says it's rubbish would it not have been more sensible or would it not have made more sense to have said he was going to set the cop on fire which would have drawn attention to us all to begin with wouldn't, wouldn't that have made more sense yeah the smell of burning cop does sense to attract attention you know um, and especially as there's an undercover cop there and so the cops would have known about it you know I, I just think it was a stupid story but there we are I but, mean saying that the guy you know suffered severe blood loss he's been shot in the stomach so oh come on can... it's just a flesh wound <laughs> I mean, come God. on this isn't die hard man well then he should have worn a vest 
<laughs> That's the lesson we can take from this. So yeah, you, you've got you have got Mr. Orange playing a double life here and playing it very well. Um, I love him in every scene that he's in. He Mr. Orange wasn't my favorite character by any stretch of imagination, but he was a damn fine he was a damn fine character. So. Let's go on to who really was my favourite in this film, um, as far as characters concerned. I've I gotta say Mr. Pink. I thought he was a wonderful character in this. Come on, that sounds like Mr. Faggot. <laughs> I yes, Steve Buscemi is is he's a fantastic and as I said before him, he's a, an actual American honestly goodness American hero. <laughs> the guy vol volunteered with his old fire company in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, he used to be a fireman before he became an actor. No, no. It, it, in New York, and when 9-11 happened, he was there on the scene, volunteering with his old company. So, honestly, goodness, bonafide, the American hero. Got a lot of respect for the guy, and, yeah, he's a great, and he's great in this. He's, he's kind of always that, Kind of little Weasley guy, and he—it's a role that he plays so well. You know, he kind of seems to have made it his own that role. He does it. You know, yeah. he's not in this. He's been, you know, the Big Lebowski. He's been, you know, numerous things, and he's been great in every one of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back to the line between him and Mr. White um, that you know I was talking about briefly earlier, and I want to read it out in full because I think you know and. I can't deliver it um, in the way that he can, and for that I apologise, but I do think it's a wonderful piece of writing by Quentin Tarantino, and I think it's a wonderful um, performance by him, which says, fuck you, White, I didn't create the situation, I'm just dealing with it. You're acting like a fucking first-year thief, I'm acting like a professional. If they get him, they get you, they get to me. They get closer to me and that can't happen. A new motherfucker are looking at it like, my fault? I didn't tell him my name, I didn't tell him where it's from, I didn't tell him what I knew better than not to tell you, tell him brother. Fuck, 15 minutes ago you almost told me no, your name. You buddy, you're stuck in the situation you created, so if you want to throw a bad look at someone, throw in the fucking mirror. And, like I say, I can't give it the way that um, Steve Buscemi gave it, but I love the dialogue between the two characters. Mr. Pink, you know, I've heard him, I've heard it said that he's slimy. Because of the end of the film, you know. Yeah. But and and, and we will get onto this. But it's like, well, what else was he going to do? He's making the best of a bad situation. Absolutely. I think. Absolutely, I think he's the most sensible person out of everyone involved. Exactly. I mean, he's the one trying to, trying to keep the peace. Yeah, he's trying to keep. He's trying to calm everyone down and say, "Look, guys, Jesus Christ." Let's have a bit of professionalism here, Christ. We're we are almost at the finishing line here. Let's just let cooler heads prevail, and just do, chill the know, fuck out. And yeah, basically just chill the fuck out. You know, he he even says, "Look, I'm just gonna go away. I'm I'm gonna go and stay in a hotel. I'm gonna keep my head down for three days until this all blows over, and we'll go from there." He's the only body. Is the only person rather who ends He's thinking up, rationally. He is, and and he has the stones at the end of it. You know, he, he's the only one that got away with with the diamonds. He's the only one who can rationally say why they got set up. He's the only one using his head. He says, 
the police should not have arrived as quickly as they did. And he's absolutely right. No I'm not saying they weren't there. there. I'm saying they were yeah. there. Yeah. I'm just saying they waited. Absolutely. He's the only buddy who is thinking rationally and saying, look, if you just step back for a minute and think... Just think about it. And yeah. you'll see what I'm saying is correct. Yeah. I mean... Let's... I'm just I'm just reading some of the quotes here, and you know there are there are some great some great ones from both Mr Orange and Mr Pink, mm. uh, as well as of course Mr Blonde and Mr White. Uh, I'm just gonna try and pick out w- one here. Uh, so if you just carry on a second while I, while I try and find it. Uh, to be honest with you, I I've said in the past that. The difficulty with doing comedy films is that they basically just turn into a quote fest. And I was really this is the worried. first quote fest we've had. I was really worried. Now, having watched this film just before, I really was worried that we were just going to sit here quoting the film. Because I mean, there are so many good lines. Yeah, I mean, there's there's one here. Something you shoved the red hot poker up our ass, and I want to know whose name was on the handle. <laughs> Mr. Pink, you know. I, I I love I love the um, the overreaction of Nice Guy Eddie, you know, where he's saying, um, "I've just spoke I've um, I've just spoken um, to somebody, and he says that Daddy's pissed." And Mister Blonde turned around and I said, "What did Joe say?" He told you I didn't talk to him. And I just love his overreaction, and he's he he Chris Penn, God bless him, he delivers some really good lines in this. And again, it is down to Grand Zarantino. But we'll, we'll go back to the script and we'll go back to quotes in a bit because I do think we do need to spend quite a bit more time on the on the script itself. Um, you know, As I say, we're probably not going to talk about the storyline too much because honestly, there's not much to it. But that doesn't mean it's a bad film. It's still a wonderful film in itself. So... It's fantastically shot as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Mr. Pink, the slime ball. Um, if you've seen, if you've seen Monsters Inc., and I know I'm probably sounding like I'm going off on a tangent here, <laughs> but if you've seen Monsters Inc., he was perfect for Randall. He yeah. really was, and he, I don't think they could have picked a better person to play Randall in that. I really don't think they could. I've, I've, I've the line I was looking for. I've just found it, by the way. I um, do so. We're going to go back to, to the uh, dining scene okay. where he's talking about the tips. And Mr. Pink says, I'm, I'm very sorry the government taxes the tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. It would seem to me that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. <laughs> Look, if you ask me to sign something that says the government shouldn't do it, I'll sign it, put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And as for what? As for this non-college bullshit, I've got two words for that. Well, it's a fucking type, because if you're expecting me to help out with with the rent, you're in for a fucking big surprise. And, of course, one of the most famous lines from the film. Do you know what this is? Rubs his fingers together. This the is world's smallest violin playing for all the waitresses. And it is such a good line, because the thing is, you can use it in so many different situations, and it will piss off the person that you're speaking to immensely. It will instantly piss them off, it's, it's, and you might well get hit. It's almost like turning around saying, nah, 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 you know, it is just that, 
It's an instant middle finger. It is, it is. But it's so wonderfully delivered. I couldn't think of anyone else but Steve Buscemi landing that line, or at least landing it well. What I love about this, um, we already mentioned fiction before, folk fiction. Yeah. Obviously, in this, he's, he's a guy who doesn't sift waitresses. In Pulp Fiction, he's a guy who's a waiter. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have <laughs> much of a part, but he was in it nonetheless. It, I mean, I think it was just Tarantino doing a deliberate little nod going, <laughs> look at this guy, you know, we fucked him. Paul Steve Buscemi. Yeah, I mean, Paul Steve Buscemi, but at the same time, the guy, he's consistent, he gets work. Okay, so let's talk about um, Mr. 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 Eddie, Mr. Nice Guy Eddie, um, played by the sadly departed Chris Penn. Yeah. Um, she really departed. He died very young. And quite recently, wasn't it? In the last few years. Uh, twelve years ago, I think it was. No way! Seriously. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna look it up now. Um. Pre- Jesus, pre- I didn't sure. know it was that long ago. 2006. Blimey. Jan- January 24th, 2006, he was 40. I do remember he was very young. You know, I mean, I don't know what, you know, how much he'd actually done as an actor. He's, he was in Kiss, Piss, Bang, Bang. I forgot about that. You know, he, he's not a, he's not an actor that's ever particularly stood out for me. But he was uh, very good in this, and he, as I said before, he had some cracking lines. If you've ever played uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, yes, he wasn't that. He was, was Officer Pulaski. He, he was alongside um, Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, and he was, uh, yeah, he was, he was very good in that. I guess. I mean, admittedly, it was only a bit part, but it was a bit part nonetheless. Um, you know, sorry, it was, it was a good part nonetheless. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And Nice Guy Eddie is basically the connection between um, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, and his dad, Joe. You know, there, there's a wonderful discussion between um, the Nice Guy Eddie character and the uh, Mr. Blonde character, where they're saying, you know, I, w- I want to, br- you know, when can I come back to work? When I, when can I do actual real work? And Mr. Blonde saying, well, sorry, N- Nice Guy Eddie rather saying, well, you know, Let's get you a legitimate job. Let's let's do something to get these people off your back. We'll have you working at the docks. Because he's got obviously Seymour Scagnetti. Uh, that's right. And it's um, you know, he says, "Oh, I don't want to work down the docks. I don't want to be doing heavy lifting." So you won't have to live a fucking. You don't have to lift a fucking thing. We'll get someone to sign in for you to, every day. We'll get you to sign out if anyone comes around. Oh, it's okay. He's not here. You're in a job that is constantly moving around. That's just the that's just the nature of your job. Whatever you think about Nice Guy Eddie as a character or as frankly a funny looking man who doesn't look like he graduated from high school. He clearly knows what he's doing. He knows loyalty. He knows loyalty and he knows his business. Uh, and this was ultimately the downfall at the end of the movie uh, with Mr. Orange because Mr. Mr. Blonde had shown his loyalty to the, to the nice guy and to Joe Cabo. Yeah. And had saved time for him. And, he's, you know, he turns around and says, this guy did four years. He could have walked out without serving a single day. Yeah. Just by just by naming just by giving one name and he didn't. And you think this guy's gonna fucking turn on us? 
No way. I, I'm sorry. I just, I just love the line in its, in its exact quote. It says, "This guy is gonna decide to rip us off," and I just love it as a line. And I think it's just Chris Penn's delivery of it. <sighs> It's just such a great, and I'm sorry if I blew your, your eardrums out there, Michael. I no, just no, love no. it as a line. You know, just, it's more than the lines. It's his it's face. Delivery. It's his, are you, f- no, just, you know, I don't believe a single word you've said. So let's just go over it one more time. That's your story? Okay. I'm going to give you another chance. Tell me what really happened. If that's what's happened, I'll believe you, but I want to hear it again. He has got such dedication towards his dad and towards Mr. White and towards Mr. Blonde and basically to anyone who is willing to be, you know, to, to help him out. He's anyone who's drew themselves. I think, I think here, yeah, the, the problem with Freddie, Mr. Orange, is he hasn't proven himself and, you know, Joe Cabo at the end says, you know, it's, it's him. He's the only guy I wasn't sure of. Yeah, I wasn't 100%. Yeah. And, you know, I should have trusted my gut instinct, which in in any situation is, is true. You should always go with your gut. Yeah. And that was ultimately Mr. Orange's downfall. This was his first job. And he's trying to think, he's trying to point the blame at all these other guys. Who have proven loyalty over over how many years towards you know towards nice guy Eddie and towards Joe? He he's walked into a into a situation which he clearly doesn't understand, and was effectively winging it all the way through. Well, that's it. I mean, there's the scene, the wonderful scene we mentioned before, the the commode story. Yeah. Uh, basically, his entire life in this. Is, is one giant commode story. His yeah. entire life is a, is made up. It's a lie. It's a lie. And that's ultimately, ultimately what becomes a downfall, is lies are, don't stay convincing enough to protect them. Yeah. But of course, apart from uh, Mr. Mr. White, Mr. White's the only character who, for whatever reason, actually believes Mr. Orange mm-hmm. and actually stands up for him and protects him in that. You know, ultimately costs costs them both their lives. Yeah, and I mean, going back to Nice Caddy for a second, I love the relationship between Nice Caddy and Mister Blonde in general. Because you, I mean, I don't know how far back the characters go because it's never explicitly stated, but you can tell that those guys go way back. You know, they that they possibly grew up in the same neighbourhood. That um, I've got, a, I've got a feeling these two have been in Tarantino's mind. I think these two have been friends all their lives. Yeah, or it's possible that maybe Mister Blonde, the Vic Vega character, didn't have the best of upbringing and saw Joe as a surrogate father. Um, and you know the nice guy Eddie was you know the closest thing he had to a brother. You know, I mean, I'm I'm only guessing here, but that would be what I, in my mind, what probably happened there. I mean, by by all means, Quentin, if you're listening to this, if we're wrong in any way, if if you like what we're saying, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a comment on on IMDb. Yeah, Sorry, not IMDb, iTunes, right? iTunes. Uh, but yeah, I mean. I would, I would love to hear actually Tarantino's 
full explanation of of the Vega brothers' history mm. and how they knew Joe and Nice Guy Eddie. Yeah, yeah. Um, because as to be honest, I think and you and I are film fans much in the same way Tar- Quentin Tarantino is. I think probably we wouldn't be that far off the truth. No, I think that probably... I, I, I do think that probably is the background. Um, so let's talk about Joe a little bit. There's two more characters to talk about, but honestly, they're a bit incidental, and then I really need to get a drink. So we'll take a brief pause in a moment. Um, Joe. Oh, God, what a scary-ass motherfucker. Have you ever read... You know, like comic books, the Fantastic Four? Thing. <laughs> He's the fucking thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, what 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 description of the guy? Because he is he's just a a big scary looking dude. In fantastic anti like, film. Yeah, fantastically played by Lawrence Turney, who, by the way, was an actual criminal in his younger days. Oh yeah, and he he is a, he is a scary motherfucker. I mean, he's dead now, sadly, but um. I'm just trying to fit. Sorry, I'm just trying to find an episode of something else that he was in, um, just because I want to see the. Yeah, uh, Seinfeld. Well done. I'm glad that you know that because he was. He, he was in that, and he was terrifying. <laughs> it's like, um, I can't remember the exact. I'm moment. just. I'm just reading now, Chris. Yeah. Right, and this, these are the first two pieces of trivia about the man on IMDb. He's going to the bathroom. Yeah. It says uh, he was a brawler up until the end of his career. Provoking almost all the younger actors he worked with on Reservoir Dogs, and actually having nearly come to blows with Dorothy Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and also the second piece, it says when he guest starred on Seinfeld in the Jacket episode as yeah. Elaine's father, no one scared the cast so badly that they never had him back. He stole a butcher knife from Jerry's TV kitchen and hid it under his jacket. <laughs> when Seinfeld undauntedly confronted them about it, much to the dismay of the entire cast, Tony pretended that he was go- pretending that he was going to use the knife as a gag in reference to the movie Psycho during the episode, <laughs> and quickly returned it. But Jesus, imagine a guy that size stealing a knife. I'm probably a prop knife, I would hope. <laughs> I mean, what what I love about the. Um... Uh, Lawrence T- Tierney uh, character in the episode of Seinfeld. Not going on about Seinfeld too much, but it's just the very end when he starts singing um, uh, "The Master of the House" with absolutely dead tone, and he's just—it's just so funny. It's just—I just love him in it. Um, but again, you wouldn't. Joe's an interesting character in the sense of that. I think if you got on the right side of him. You could probably trust him with your life, but God yeah. help if you got on the wrong side of him. You know what I mean? Don't give him a reason to not trust you. Yeah, he—he's one of those people that's like he'll do anything for you, but God help you if he crosses path. Yeah, I, and again, I think it's old school. I think it's you know you do right by me, and I'll do right by you type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which, I say it's old school, it's not really old school, because it's the type of thing we should all be doing anyway. Maybe not but, in this scenario, but yes. Uh, to, you know, to use a, an off-the-use term, I think he he lives the code of honour amongst thieves. Yes, yeah. Um, 
so if if you do the job that you pay you know that you're paid to do or that you're hired to do if you if you fuck up you've got to pay pay a price for fucking up because I mean in, in the scene where you do where you see um, Joe speaking to Mr. White and indeed Mr. Blonde you know it, it's clear that Mr. that Joe has an awful lot of time for these people. I mean, Mr. Blonde turns around and says, you know, thank you very much for the packages that you sent. And he's like, what do you think we're going to do? Just let you sit in there and rot? Um, you know, he clearly yeah. has a lot of respect for this man. Absolutely. And, you know, the guy knows the price he's paid because as nice guy that we already covered, he says, he's done four years in prison. When all he had to do was say, it was Joe. Mm. You know, that so there's a, there is a lot of respect between the two men, even though they're, they're two tough guys. You can never see these two ever coming to blows. Yeah, I think they respect not. each other too much for that. And I think if Mr. if Mr. Blonde had survived until the end, you know, the two would have kind of ridden off into the sunset because Mr. Blonde would undoubtedly have killed. To use another Tarantino line. Absolutely every motherfucker in the room. <laughs> Good line. I'll give him that. Okay, so there are just two more characters left. And really, I think the reason we've not spoken to them about them at all is because, frankly, they're a bit incidental. Uh, you've got Mr. Blue, who is played by Eddie Bunker, and you've got Mr. Brown, who is played by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Quentin Tarantino takes up the bulk of the um, dialogue at the start of the film. And Mr. Blue, I think he maybe says four lines at the most, if that. Yeah, he's, he's not the most talkative chap in the movie. And it almost makes me wonder why they got him in. Now, Mr. Blue, Eddie Bunker. Mm. Interesting Again, little fact here. He was, sorry. He did time in prison as well, didn't he? If I remember he right. did, with, a, with, with Machete himself, Danny Trejo. I'm not sure who that is. You've seen Machete, surely. I haven't, you know. Have you seen... you seen from Dust Till Dawn? Years ago. It's been a long time. The bartender. I can't remember, honestly. It's been such a long time since I've seen... Big the, Mexican dude with loads of tattoos, man. The, the only thing I remember about the um, about from Dust Till Dawn is that famous joke, like, um, Jesus wanders into a bar and says, can you put me up for the night? Yeah, she's one of those into a bar, so I'm from there on the, t- on the counter, yeah, on the bar. Which is a good line, to be fair. I mean, it's not quite as good as, um, no, do you, going off on a tangent, but do you remember <laughs> seeing an advert for No More Nails? Yes. With Jesus on the cross and saying, it's a miracle underneath. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got that, that, that got pulled very quickly, I seem to remember. Yes. <laughs> it was fucking hilarious, but, you know. Oh, it was fucking genius. So, yeah, do we really have much to say about Mr. Blonde and Mr... Sorry, about Mr. Blue and Mr. Brown? Aside from the fact that Mr. Brown has kick-ass dialogue because it's Quentin Tarantino, so he's always going to have kick-ass dialogue. I mean, I th- they're really there as placeholders. Mm. Yeah. Um, they are disposable elements in this movie, and I think they're meant to be. I think that's the that's the good thing about them. It's not even though you're aware of them in the movie. Yeah. When they're killed off, you don't necessarily mourn them because they weren't in it long enough. 
I mean, I can't help but feel that Mr. Brown was almost a character that Quentin basically said, look, I've written this really cool dialogue. And no one else but me can deliver it. And it's my film, no, so no, I'm no. going to put it in there. Tarantino didn't write Mr. Bl- Mr. Brown for himself. Tarantino actually wrote Mr. Pink for himself. Yeah, but you get the feeling that, you know, he probably saw Steve Buscemi was better as Mr. Pink. No, And no. said, well, I still need something Steve to Buscemi, do. Steve Buscemi had to argue with him for, for the role. And well, I'm glad he did. Tarantino said, "If you come in and ki- and deliver a kick-ass audition, you can have that role." Okay, but do you think that he then deliberately created Mr. Brown and the dialogue simply because he thought, "Well, I still want to be in this film and I want to still um, deliver some kick-ass dialogue." I, I don't. I think Mr. Brown was probably already a character in much the same way Silent Bob was. I'm not. I'm not convinced he was because what did he add to the film? I mean, let's face it. The only other time you see him is when he's driving a car and crashes it and says, "I'm blind, I'm blind." He does nothing else. Well, I mean, I'm just going again. I'm DB. I mean, you know, he he, he gives Silent Bob gives far more reverence into a into a character than Mister, and and it's not Quentin's fault. I don't blame him. Um, if I could, if I was the director of the film, if I was in charge, excuse me, and if I'd written this kick-ass dialogue, you're damn right I'd want to be in it. But what I'm saying is, it's a disposable character. There's no need for it. The story would not have changed one little bit were Mr. Brown not in that scene. It wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, I mean... How, how, how was it linked in any way? I don't think it was, but I mean, at the same time, I think he was. I think his role probably was just getaway driver. Everyone needs a getaway driver. True. So I think you know because it shows him being the driver after the, after the heist. Yeah, I mean, um, okay, he does that. I'll give you that. But let's face it, there wasn't much there. <laughs> okay, well, on that note. <laughs> I'm going to hit the pause on this uh, because I really need a drink. I imagine <laughs> that Mike does too. Um, yeah. So if I can actually remember how to pause this without clearing all of the recording, um, we will get a drink and we'll be back in a few minutes, guys. See you after the break. Uh, Let me know when we're clear. Uh, so, after that brief interlude where we have, well, I've had 15 of about Mike and a bottle of Mountain Dew. Oh, yes. Citrus Blast. Pro- product placement, Chris, we can't do it. I don't work for the BBC. I can advertise people as much as I want. <laughs> so, we've Send us the, products. So, we've covered the characters, I think, reasonably well. I think we could have gone into a lot more detail about them, but... You know, we've been talking for an hour and a half already, so... Um, yeah, I think people have probably had their fill. I mean, let's, let's talk about the actual production, because... Yes, good idea, good idea. Um, we've already you... mentioned that this was a, an extremely low-budget movie, but as well as that, Quentin Tarantino was surprised when he got a call from Harvey Keitel saying he wanted to produce it. Yes. Uh, Harvey Keitel actually put up quite a, you know, quite a lot of the money for this movie. Mm. Yeah, I mean, 
this is the thing. I've heard a lot of people criticising the role of executive producers and just being the um, just being the mo- the um, just being the money men. But let's face it: if it wasn't for a lot of these people, these pro- these films would never have got made. Exactly. I mean, two two of the biggest executive producers, really, to an awful lot of to an awful lot of films, um, are Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Without them, an awful lot of films probably would never have got greenlit. I mean, I I didn't realize this until I actually bought the pulse poster for Pulp Fiction, that Danny DeVito was an executive producer of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, so, okay, let's let's talk about the production of Reservoir Dogs. Um, let's talk about a couple of the key scenes. Um, we've already spoken about the um, scene in the restaurant. We've spoken a bit about the commode. Um, I mean, there are, there are many, many kind of places in this movie, if you, no. if you know what I mean. Uh, it's a very by locations, set. I mean. It, yeah, it, it's it's a very you know, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I think this really is a film, alongside um, you know the likes of Blair Witch the the Blair Witch Project, not Blair Witch Project, the two entirely films, um, the first one, and other films that are failing to spring into my mind now that I think about it is to say to people, look, you don't have to have the biggest budget in the world. If you have a good script, if you have an imagination, and if you have the drive to really do this, you can do it. You know, um, Clerks is a classic example. Yeah. Kevin Smith made that film on nothing. Um, You know... I don't exactly know how Tarantino got this film greenlit. Um, I mean, I'm just reading, just reading here, Chris, in the commentary for True Romance, mm. which obviously Tarantino wrote. Tarantino said that Tony Scott read both True Romance and Reservoir Dogs, and told Tarantino he, he wanted to direct Reservoir Dogs. But Tarantino said, "No, you can have true romance, but I'm doing dogs." Oh, it's his baby. I I couldn't imagine anyone else um, directing Reservoir Dogs. No, I mean this is one of those movies that I pray to God it never gets the remake treatment. This is an absolutely perfect movie for what oh, it is. Yeah, it should never get touched. I mean, just the the camera angles alone that Tarantino uses. The scene in the bathroom when it's circling round the the Tim Roth character, the the off camera shots that you have are brilliant. The the looking up from the back of the car when the policeman's in the boot is wonderfully placed. I mean that that's become one of his one of his signatures. Very much, it's it's a staple it's, scene. Yeah. Um, uh, and and what and you know one one of my favourite moments or well one of them because there are so many, where you don't see it on camera, but you can imagine exactly what the character is going through, um, is a line that actually that made it into the song Fun Loving Criminals, um, where he says, you need to be cool. Are you cool? Everybody. And then you suddenly hear this chair being kicked and says, yeah, man, I'm cool. And 
you don't know what's going on because you can't see it, but you can almost imagine him turning around and saying, look, you need to be cool. And the cameras there would probably show the Tim Roth character, uh, sorry, the um, the Steve Buscemi character getting really angry, no, smashing uh, the chair on the floor and then saying, yep, yeah, I'm okay now. No, the line is, uh, everybody be cool. Are we cool? And then you hear a chair scraping. Yeah, no, no, cool. no, 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 you, no. You, you're getting your lines mixed up here. Everybody Hold on, we are we are the song for loving criminals by for loving criminals, aren't we? We are, but it's two separate lines. Because well, every, every no no, because everybody cool, everybody be cool is the opening to the everybody um, cool. There's a motherfucking robbery. Yep. And every you fucking bricks move out and let's kill every motherfucking last one of you. From um, from Pulp Fiction. From Pulp Fiction. And the, line not... of, and the line of Reservoir Dogs is, "You need to be cool. Are you cool?" Yeah, man, I'm cool. They used both in um, From the Moon Criminals. Uh, sorry, in um, the... Uh, 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 and it wasn't it's actually song. called the From the Moon Criminals. What was it called? Scooby Snacks. The, yeah, it was Scooby Snacks, the track. Um, which sampled um, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction um, very well, including the um, the torture scene. Uh, but no, there were, there were two separate lines um, from two separate Yeah, films. I'll admit that you're right. I was getting my songs mixed up. Because they are both cool, awesome songs. <laughs> and I'm going to admit now, Huey is one of my idols. <laughs> he is just such a cool guy. Big fan of Jossie's Giants, believe it or not. They're a very good band in general. I mean, I, I mean, not not to go on about the fan of Criminals too much, but I love their version of um, their, their cover of Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. Have you ever heard oh, of that? Oh, man, just a, just a smooth, smooth motherfucking song. It's I don't care what anyone says. It's, it's, you know, just the guitar and the bass you're, line is just wonderful. You're making me want, you're making me want to listen to Fun Loving Criminals now, man. <laughs> I'm going to YouTube the fuck out of these after. <laughs> so, yeah, going back to Quentin Tarantino, though, with his, his directing, he is, again, and I think I've said this in another podcast before, he is a director who has no wasted motion. Everything that you see is there for a purpose. He doesn't. In, he doesn't include shots just for the sake of it. Nothing's wasted. Yeah. Now, we were talking at the beginning of the show, Chris. Mm-hmm. You said about the the budget for the soundtrack. Yeah. I've just found out in 2014, Quentin Tarantino did reveal in an interview that the entire soundtrack budget was spent on stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, I always thought it was um, that right. way. Uh, just to carry on, it says, Tarantino was content with having no other music in the film, as long as he could use that song. <laughs> but the other songs were secure, thanks to the producers managing to make a record deal for the soundtrack. But Tarantino and the producers were well aware that the plan may have just failed. Well, it it is it, you know it is so perfect. It's um, it's like the scene in Pulp Fiction where they're dancing in Jack Jack Rabbit Slim, and I can't remember the actual title of the song. Uh, Missile Lou. I don't even. I wouldn't have a. I wouldn't have guessed that that was the title of the track in a million years. Oh, um, oh no, sorry. Um, it it was Chuck Berry. Sorry, wasn't it? It was. They had a teenage with and then the old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you never can tell. Uh, you never can tell. That was it. Thank you very much. That scene wouldn't have worked, I don't think, with any other piece of music. As I said before, the opening of this film wouldn't have worked without Little Green Bags. I 
I love the opening to this film because of, you know, um, I said this in the Logan episode, which we're still yet to complete and still yet to release, <laughs> that I loved the opening um, of Logan because it was so simple. And I love the opening to Reservoir Dogs for the exact same film. The first thing you see on screen is a Quentin Tarantino film. No yeah. one does that anymore. I, no one, almost no one has the balls to do that anymore. And I love the fact that he actually did it. And the fact that I mean, it's, there's, there's it's, almost it's, there's, there's, yeah. there's no real massive studio logos. No, which, there's, there's not. There's no. There's no amazing graphical no, effects. It's nowadays, just, nowadays, before the stars were movie, you've got five minutes of fucking studio logos. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's just the way things are because of how much money needs to be pumped into film these days you can't avoid it um you know I, I i don't i don't want to get into too much of a rant here but generally speaking you're right the more production companies you see at the start of a film generally the worse a film that it is because they've got to have so many people signed on to give so much money the only exception to that rule is if you see either the BBC or Film 4. Generally speaking, if the BBC are involved or if Film 4 are involved, there's something special because they know film. And to a yeah. lesser extent, ITV. I don't watch a lot of ITV, but I'll give them credit. Their dramas are second to none. So it's just something you can't avoid. Um, it, it's it's just the way it is, sadly. But yeah, what I love about the opening to Us of Our Dogs is just the simple orange typeface on a yeah. black screen just scrolling up yeah and and how they how they present each character with with their names across the screen i know but i don't know that this opening would necessarily piss people off but i think that if you showed um a lot of people older films um, such as Casablanca, such as Gone with the Wind, and even to an extent Wicker Park. And I hated Wicker Park, but fair play, at least it had decent opening credits. <laughs> I think it would annoy an awful lot of people because there are massive credits before it because that's just how it worked back it, in the day. Because it's simple. And, and people, these, people these days, I hate to say it, you don't like simple. No, I don't think it's simple that. Simple confuses people. I, I don't think it's simple. I think it's more just a case of, can we just get on with the action, please? We don't need to know who wrote it. We don't need to know who directed it. We don't need to... Who, who catered the, 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 the studio. People don't care about that. You know, I once heard someone say, you need to have these opening because it gives people credits, to which someone said, they do give people credits, it's called the credits. Yeah. I don't think people could put up with that anymore. They'd want to skip it. Um, and I, I love the fact that Tarantino uses it because it it sets up the film so well. You go from one extreme to the other. These seven or eight guys sitting around a cafe having a lovely conversation. You know, having a Sunday afternoon coffee, effectively, to this yeah. really jolly, um, to this really jolly music, to the screams of "I'm gonna die," and then you see Tim Roth in a bloody mess. Now that the dinner scene we've already touched on it, you were asking did Tarantino write that so we could give himself some cool lines? No, I didn't ask that. I said well, that. You, you, I implied that. I okay, said that's exactly the reason. Positive a suggestion. Um but he didn't no, he actually I'm, wrote I'm it. sorry, I'm sorry. Whatever you have to say right now, I won't believe you. He wrote he wrote that scene to give Mr. Blue some lines. Because Mr. Blue, apart from that scene, mm. has absolutely no lines in the entire movie. What 
lines did he give to Mr. Blue apart from the fact that he said, I liked her when she did other things? He, he did sod all in that. <laughs> he said, you know, when she did Borderline or something, I can't... When, when she did that proper don't preach phase, I switched off. All right, let me just... Um... Well, well acted, well done. That's some amazing dialogue. How long did you spend on? How long did you spend on the the, the set, Edward Bunker? Two minutes, two and a half for its uh, first second dialogue. Well done. I'd, I'd, I'd know, say five because let's face it, he might have watched any retakes. As I said, that's not a criticism of Eddie Bunker as a character. I just don't think he was any reason to be there. No, I still think Quentin Tarantino purposely wrote that script and purposely put himself into the place to be able to say, look at me, I can write amazing dialogue, and God damn it, you're going to listen. And you know what? He ta- he can write good dialogue. He can. Exactly. He's a master of dialogue. Let's face it, while the guy's directing, he's not going to... Th- not cast himself? Absolutely not. If he had the chance to sit there and say this amazing dialogue, why shouldn't he? You know, fair play to the guy. I don't blame him. If you wrote something that good, I'm quite certain that you'd want to deliver it as well. I'll, I, In I fairness, never... if I wrote something as good as Reservoir Dogs, I'd give myself... <laughs> I mean, you know what? I'd give, I'd give you some good lines as well, dude. Don't get me wrong. But I'd probably give myself, you know, some of the best lines in the movie. But why wasn't he more involved in the film, do you think? I mean, was it purely I, because he was directing and he couldn't do both at once? I, th- I think probably as well. I mean, Tarantino realises he's he's no actor. No, no. You know, no, nobody's ever, ever going to give him any award for his acting skills, let's face it. Because he's not an actor. He is a director who occasionally appears in I, the odd scene. I, as I said at the beginning, when he had that shit-eating, shit-eating grin on his face... When it was like, yes, you know, it, I can't it, believe I'm here. Yeah, I mean, it it was it's it's he was working arguably with you know with his idols, and you can't blame the guy for grinning. I, you know, I would if I got. To, I mean, most of my idols are dead, so you know, if I got to work with them, it'd probably mean I was dead as well. So uh, I'm trying to realize what the point is there. But the guy is working with some of the, some of the biggest names in Hollywood, making his first real big movie. I mean, yeah. he's had his movies produced before by other directors, but this is his movie, his baby. Oh, so it is. I, I couldn't imagine anyone else doing it. Um, you know, there, there are an awful lot of fine directors out there. That there's an awful lot of people who know how to make good films. Um, Ridley Scott is a prime example of this. Um, you know, uh, you but, can't imagine anyone else doing one of Ridley Scott's movies. Well, they did. They made Alien. They they made the other Alien films, and they were terrible. Well, Aliens wasn't bad, but you know, Aliens. Aliens had James Cameron. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Aliens wasn't bad because it was James Cameron, but Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection were shambles. Alien 3 was only bad because of the studio. I mean... In the, fairness. The really because you had an, the, the really had an excellent director. Alien. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the sad thing. David Fincher, man. David Fincher. Why was Alien 3 bad? I don't understand why it was the so studio, terrible. Because the studio made them make their movie rather than the movie he wanted. Yeah. Um, and, 
know, I think he kind of he kind of proved his point later on with Fight Club by saying to them, "Listen, I'm going to make this the way I want it," yeah. and he did. Fight Club is an amazing movie, which shows what he can do when he's given it that was. kind of free reign. It was, but but let's let's move away from um from them at the moment. Anyway, I mean, yeah. Point is, only Tarantino could make this movie. Absolutely, I, fucking I, Woody Allen couldn't make this movie. Same way Tarantino couldn't make a Woody Allen movie. I think Woody Allen will have a good go at it. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. I think Woody Allen is a competent director. I mean, no, Woody, Woody Allen is a fine director, but he couldn't make Reservoir Dogs. What about... He'd make... Um, what about... Annie Dogs or, you know, Reservoir Hall. Um, what about someone like... Uh, oh, gosh... Alfred Hitchcock. Because he's another director who knows exactly what he's doing and all but sorry, who knew exactly what he was doing at all times. Absolutely. I I, I think Hitchcock is possibly one of the few directors who could have and I think if he'd still been alive, he'd have he'd have had a lot of love for, for this movie. And I think as well as a producer, another another famous name who would have would have really enjoyed this movie was possibly Charlie Chaplin. I never really thought about Charlie Chaplin, to be perfectly honest. I mean, Charlie Chaplin was a prolific director. Yeah. I've, I, mean, I mean, I've not seen any, any of his stuff. He's, I've, I've, I've never understand the appeal of Charlie Chaplin, but that's just me. Um, you know. I'm just going to... Sorry, if you just... Uh, I think he's listed another Charles Chaplin online. Yes, he is. <laughs> I mean, you, you've arguably heard of most of his, his movies, or, and he's had influences on pretty much everyone in the years he was alive and the years he's, since he's been dead. He directed 71 movies. Blimey, that's impressive. Yeah. I mean, not all of these were shorts. Um, and we're going back to the days where it was, you know, kind of all black and white and silent movies. Mm. Um, the Great Dictator, you've, you must have heard of The Great Dictator, surely. Uh, as is, not really. Film that I managed think, to piss off Hitler. Um, no, I mean, the, the most I really know about Charlie Chaplin, to be fair, and the only time I've ever really heard it referenced in awful lot was Black Hannah Goes Forth. Dude, I would suggest, I would suggest honestly, I'm just going to look up the, the name of the movie. Alright. Oh, there's a couple here, actually. Modern Times and City Lights. I've heard of City Lights. I've never seen it, though. Honestly, I, I, went, to the, I went to my local cinema to watch it a while back. Uh, fantastic film. I mean, it's, it's not that I've got anything against Charlie Chaplin. Um, arguably, he gave us one of um, the one of the best silent characters we've, we've ever seen in a film um, in Gromit from Wallace and Gromit. Um, I've just never really been especially interested in his work. It's just nothing that's never really appealed to me. I would, I would honestly suggest checking him out because I know you, you're like me. You like all the movies. <laughs> um, for me, Charlie Chaplin, he was, he's a guy who did everything. We've actually got separate credits here on IMDb. Writer of 88, actor in 88 movies, director of 71, 
Soundtrack, 70. Editor, 56. Producer, 37. Composer, 20. The man did everything that's possible to do in movies. And there's not many... Not many people you can say that about. So I think Charlie Chaplin, for that reason alone, because he's that kind of does everything kind of that kind of guy, I think he would have enjoyed this because again Tarantino does everything. No fair do, so I'll give him a go. I'll give him a shot. Um Okay, so what else do we want to cover about Reservoir Dogs before we pull time on this? I I don't really want to talk more about the script. Actually, well, let's let's cover the script a little bit more, but let's not again try and turn this into a quote. Fest. No quote fests, no. Um, I mean, for me, this is what this is one of the finest scripts possibly of my lifetime. Why do you think that? And 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 that's not me questioning it because I agree. I'm just confused why you think, and then also why I think it is. I think it's an incredibly well-written, very tight script. There's no wasted dialogue. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, some of the movies now, I mean, again, within my lifetime, you can look at some of the dialogue and go, why is that in there? It doesn't <laughs> need to be. We don't need this kind of pointless explanation. Yeah. Um, And Tarantino doesn't have that in this movie. Every every line of dialogue from every character serves a purpose. Yeah, yeah. And that for me is is why it's it's one of the best because if if there's no wasted dialogue, there's no bad dialogue. I mean, for me, what I really like about the script um, in general is how naturally it flows. Yeah, everybody, every line that's delivered has a purpose. Every, every line that's said, you know, has fought into it. it it just feels natural and maybe that's because of the actors i don't know i, I think um, that that is a large part of it is that it doesn't feel like a script no it, it just especially and i hate to keep going back to this but especially the dialogue between mr pink and mr white you know it yeah. really feels like they're actually genuinely in that situation and it just seems to work yeah, absolutely, it does. And uh, I think it's because, I mean, everything works for this movie because you know it's a low budget film, which works for it. Mm. If it had more, if it had been a fifty million dollar production, I don't think it would have worked. I agree. I think there would have been too many studio executives trying to get their fingers in the pie. Too many egos. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And uh, if it had been kind of any other director, any other writer. Any other set of actors, I don't think it would have worked as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he absolutely got the right guys for, for the jobs. And he's very lucky with Tim Roth, because Tim Roth actually refused to read at all for the movie. And uh, it was only when Tarantino took him out for drinks and basically got him drunk. <laughs> and he agreed to actually read for it. So, I think in that instance, he got him very lucky... And that this, I'm just check by the way. This was Tim Roth's first real big Hollywood movie, and um, because it wasn't a big Hollywood movie, I think that's what got him the attention. And I think that's probably why he's been quite loyal in the years to Tarantino, and um, popped up wherever wherever he's been required, yeah. because of that chance he was given. I mean, I think we've said this before that Tarantino is one of those actors 
where he probably releases a state a, a press statement saying, I'm making this film. And before he's even said what the title is, he's probably got a thousand people on the phone saying, I want to be in your film. What film? Yeah. We talked about two minutes ago. Oh, that film. Yes, get me a part. Get me a I mean, part now. You look at, you look at put, get another, we'll go back to Pulp Fiction. Mm. Christopher Walken. Yeah. How yeah. perfect. He's not, he's in it for five minutes. But How perfect though really is Christopher Walken? Yeah, yeah, really uh, I agree. You know, Christopher Walken is a, is one of the finest actors alive, I think. But he is genuinely scary. <laughs> in I mean, in real life as well as in that movie. But he's it, it, such a wonderful. And I think Tarantino, he's he just says. I think he must say to actors, listen, just go out. And read this dialogue as you would read it naturally. Don't try and do anything. You know, don't try and take my direction. Do your thing. I, I think that's what works. And I, I loved Tim Roth as um, as Waldo in The Hateful Eight. He is so <laughs> well brilliant. done, Moosley, at your service. Sorry? Well, well done, Moosley, at your service. <laughs> there's, there's a lie. Actually, you know what? Right, before we talk, start talking about Tarantino in general, because I do want to start talking about Tarantino's other films. Um, obviously, we'll cover them in depth, but I would like to know. I would like to look into the Tarantino verse. Do we have anything more to say about um, Reservoir Dogs before we finish on it? All I'm gonna say is, if you haven't watched this movie before, go and watch it. If you have seen it before but haven't seen it for a while, go and watch it. If you're sitting there scratching your head thinking, "What the fuck are we talking about?" Go and watch it. If you agree with us, go, basically go and watch it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I do think it's it's a very special film that for an for a massive generation, rather like Clerks did. Um, you know that we spoke about some a while ago. It redefined the genre. It, it did, and it probably influenced an awful lot of um studio filmmakers out there who thought, you know what, let's give it a go. Um, let, let's give it a shot. Yeah. I mean, it's thanks to this film we got from Dust Till Dawn. It's thanks to this well... film we've got... It's, it's thanks to this film we've got directors like Robert Rodriguez and Eli Roth. Yeah. Who are two very fine directors Eli in my Roth, opinion. really? The guy who made I mean, Boston? Cabin Fever. Cabin Fever wasn't terrible. Um, I think I think it had a genuinely good twist. I I I just hated the Hostel films. I really did, and I remember the only reason I watched. Um, and and this is actually another part, and this is actually another problem with films in general. Um, and in, in fact, going back to executive producer for a second, where it can actually be a problem. I watched that film purely based on the fact that it had Quentin Tarantino's name on it, and I watched um, Killing Zoe purely on the basis that Quentin Tarantino's name was on it, even though he had nothing to do with it, happened to be the writer of Reservoir Dogs who was involved in it, which was a shit film. <laughs> I hated Killing Zoe. It was terrible. Uh, I'm just trying to remember, I haven't seen Killing Zoe in... <laughs> Well, since since ninety three, to be I don't honest, many people have to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'm just going to look at the script, directed by Roger Avery, which 
I'm I'm trying to think what what I know I'm from. That would be that nothing. I don't know him from anything. That would be why I don't know him because he's he's rich. Killing Zoe is literally the only thing he's ever done. I've yeah. heard of. It it wasn't good. It wasn't a good film. I mean, just just gonna look at the cast. I mean, good cast. Eric Stoltz, Julie Delpy. Well, you say Eric Stoltz. He was in Pulp Fiction. He was very good in Pulp Fiction. He was also in. Um, he was also in Back to the Future before he got replaced. Yeah, he was also in the flight through playing Jeff Goldblum's son, which made absolutely fuck all sense. Oh wow, he was in the flight too. My God, <laughs> I didn't think that much of the first one. To be perfectly hey, honest with you, I've just seen Killing Zoe's got Ron Jeremy. You've got to give them credit for that. No, I don't have to give Ron, <laughs> I don't have to give Ron Jeremy a credit for anything. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's start talking about Quentin, Quentin Tarantino's work. Okay, so um, pull up Quentin Tarantino's work on IMDb, Mike, and let's go through what you've seen. And then, uh, in fact, I'll say what I've seen, then you say what you've seen, and then we'll all okay. or something like that. Which start. credits are we going for then? Pure as a director. As a director, okay. Yeah. Okay, so. I'm going to start with what I've seen. Um, surprisingly enough, I've seen Reservoir Dogs. Uh, I've seen Pulp Fiction, which I enjoyed. See, um, natural... I've seen Four Rooms. Never seen not Four Real Four Rooms rather. Uh, I know he only did the story for. Oh, hang on. Sorry, I'm looking at writer credits here. Let me get rid of writer credits, and let me bring yeah. up director. Might be right. useful to, to go on the same credits. Yeah, okay, so we've got, um, yeah, so director credits, okay. So, yeah, we've got the aforementioned Reservoir Dogs, uh, Pulp Fiction scene. Oh, we did a one episode of ER, interesting. Be, yeah. Please be interested to see that, actually. Jackie Brown couldn't stand that film at all. I thought it was shit. Um, Kill Bill Volume 2, uh, I did actually enjoy them. Uh, I thought they were I thought they were decent enough. Yeah. Um, Sin City, not terrible. Haven't seen Grindhouse. Haven't seen Death Proof. Have seen Inglorious Bastards, but don't remember an awful lot about it. Um, haven't seen Kill Bill: The Whole Bloody Affair. I don't even know what that is. Neither I've do I. Seen Dango and Chill and Change rather, and I have seen The Hateful Eight. Okay, what have you seen? Okay, I've seen obviously Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Pulp Fiction, Four Rooms, which um, Eli, sorry, Tim Roth is good, isn't he? <laughs> That's about all I can say. Okay. Um, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. Have you not seen Jackie Brown? I've, I've obviously seen, sorry, I've seen yeah. Jackie Brown, obviously. Um, and we were showing off this the other week because he didn't actually write it, he, it wasn't based on one of his original stories. No. No. Uh, it's, it's probably one of the few that isn't. Sin City, he directed one scene. The thing with Jackie Brown is it's a film that I think I probably should watch it again and give it another go, but I just can't bring myself to do it. And the thing is, it's got a decent cast. I think we said this the other week. You know, it's got it's got Pam Grier, it's got Samuel L. Jackson, it's got Bridget Fonda, it's got Michael Keaton, it's got Robert, Robert De Niro. De Niro. You know, it's got a good cast. 
And I yeah. don't understand why I didn't like it. I mean, I've uh-huh. got it on DVD. I might, I might watch it after we finish this tonight and give it another shot. You know. Apologies, by the way, to anyone listening. There's a couple of people arguing outside my window. If if that's getting picked up by the microphone. I think I heard something, but what 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 are they arguing about? Just out of interest. I've got no idea. That's a probably probably the price of a portion of the chips or something. Probably. <laughs> um, Grindhouse and Death Proof. I've seen. Are they any good? Yes, but I would. I'd rec- I'd recommend actually watching them both. Yeah. Because even though Death Proof is part of Grindhouse and vice versa, and mm. um, the actual cinematic cut of Death Proof is different to what you see in Grindhouse. Right. So I'd recommend watching that as well as Planet Terror as a standalone movie. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll give them a go. Don't um, try and mar- don't try and marathon them because grind <laughs> grindhouse itself is like four hours long. Right. Inglorious Bastards have got a lot of love for that movie. Michael Fassbender Oof, well, is brilliant. Yeah. Kill Bill the whole bloody affair. I've only just heard about this now when you've mentioned it and when I've looked it up. What did not you think, seen it? What did you think of um? Kill Bill 1 and 2 in general because it, it seems to be a Marmite film some people seem to love it some people seem to hate it I I, I can't say I loved it or hated it to be honest I was I was fairly kind of indifferent yeah. I think to, to the movies I mean it's clearly an homage to everything Tarantino loves in the world sorry what did you uh, just say there what's that what did you just say there I think it's a, I think it's clearly an homage. I think you'll find the word just pronounced homage. Okay, homage. Homage. Fromage. Shut up. <laughs> That's something entirely different. It's a tribute. To what? Yogurt? Well, no, I meant oh, the geez. film is a tribute to everything that Tarantino loves. <laughs> anyway, what were we talking about? Sorry, oh, yes, Kill Bill. Bill. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's Tarantino's love letter. To what? To everything. There, there are references to so many things. You know, the bride's outfit is a reference to Bruce Lee, which ah, references okay. Kung Fu films. Yeah, yeah. And you know, these are things obviously Tarantino loves. Oh, he's he's massively into, into the Asian movies. I think this is a, his kind of tribute to all of that. I mean, why do you think that there is seemingly so much hatred from people for this film? I really don't understand that. I I really don't. I mean, I don't understand hatred for any for a lot of films. I wouldn't say any films, but for a lot of films, I don't understand. Yeah. Clearly, films are going to be divisive. People are going to love them or hate them. Yeah. And um, you know, I don't understand why you, why you would dedicate so much time. An effort to hating something that we yeah. spent a lot of time on. I know what I you mean, mean. There are exceptions to that. There are, there are films that clearly should be hated because they are just terrible. <laughs> but this, these are terrible movies. That's the thing. I don't hate, don't hate them for any reason. Because, as I say, it's Tarantino's love letter to everything he he likes in in life. Um. Oh, I can hear them now. Oh, uh, apparently Jessica didn't tell him where she was. Oh, really? That's what the argument is. <gasps> Jessica, how, what are you doing? How dare you, Jessica? 
betray them. Anyway, I say, I, I'm I'm glad this I'm I'm impressed by this mic. I didn't I honestly didn't think it would be this good when I bought it. Twelve ninety nine Amazon was it? The fact that we can pick that up is quite impressive. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving on. Yes, moving from on from the Jessica and her and her bow outside my bedroom. Um. Uh, yeah. Django Unchained. I've heard a lot about it, and I know that it's one of those films that are important to watch. And I probably will watch it at some stage. We should totally do a Django day. We should. And then we should go and get drunk in Django's Rift. <laughs> Different and, Django. And I know you and I have had days out in Django's Rift before in the past. We have indeed. Um, in, in case anyone's listening and wondering what the hell Django's Rift is, by the way, it's uh, it's a bar in Liverpool. That's named after the, the famous guitarist Django. What's his name? Django Reinhardt. I never knew what that meant. I just always, you know, it was just always the name of it. I never really considered the um, the meaning behind it, so I've learned something this evening. Yeah, Django Reinhardt was a guitarist who, whose hands had been burnt in a fire. Oh, right, okay. So his, his hands were actually quite disfigured, which gave him quite a unique playing style. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's where Django's riff comes from. Right, okay. You learn something new every day. You do indeed. Uh, Hateful Eight, I yes. think, is actually... I think, it's, I think it's actually a fine film. I think uh, it's beautiful. I, I can't yeah. understand why anyone would have hatred for it. I, I really think it was his return to form. Yeah, I. you haven't seen Django. No. So you, when I say this, and when you, when you see Django, you'll understand where I'm coming from. Hateful Eight... Is Kill Bill two to Django's Kill Bill? <laughs> and I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah. Right. Clearly, these two are spiritually related. In, apart from the fact that they're by the, by the same writer and director. Yeah. Um, there are similarities between the movies. Obviously, in the fact that they're both set in the in the late eighteen hundreds, and both very much of a western theme, although. Not classic westerns in the same sense because, um, like with Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, a lot of that is set in kind of the mountains where, where it's covered in snow. Beautiful surroundings, beautiful setting. Absolutely. And you look, you look at some of these cinemascapes and go, wow, there are still places like this in the world. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it gives me hope that you know there are places of such unspoiled beauty, where people haven't gone in and fucking demolished everything and built high rises. Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to talk about um, hateful eight too much because that's not point. That's not the point of the podcast, um, at least this evening, anyway. But what I love the most about hateful eight was that it shows that once again. Tarantino not only knows how to direct a scene, but he knows how to direct people. When you're watching Hateful Eight, and I said this in a review that I was speaking to with Derek about earlier last year, um, when you watch a program like Friends or uh, Big Bang Theory or whatever, and when you watch slightly cheaper budget films or directors who don't necessarily know what they're doing, don't say it, when they bring people in who are clearly there just to make fillers, you can tell that they don't really know what they're doing in the background because yeah. they don't necessarily have lines. In Hateful Eight, 
they have every single actor on screen, but they're not necessarily contributing towards the scene. But clearly, Tarantino... But still there. Yeah, and, and clearly Tarantino has spoken to them and said, look, you are going to be on screen, so please remember that. It, it's very much like, a, it's very much like um, uh, a play in that regard. You're always in character. Yeah, always in character. They're always doing something in the background, whether it's rolling a cigarette, while, whether it's taking a drink, whatever. You don't see them slacking off at any moment. And I think that that's what makes Tarantino one of the finest directors in the world today. You know, as as if we can if we can conclude Reservoir Dogs with one thing, it would be to say that he is a director who clearly knows what he's doing. He clearly knows what he wants. He has got a vision, and he will get that vision by hook or by crook. He's done yeah. it in every single one of his films, in my opinion. Um, I would love to see the um, ER episode that he did, simply because I'm a massive fan of ER in general. He also did an episode know... of, of CSI. Well, I don't really care about CSI, but I'd be intrigued to see the episode of ER, because I think that would be wonderful to watch. Um Hateful Eight is... I thought it was beautiful. You know, I... I... We need to yeah. do an episode of it, and we will probably go on for another two hours about that as well, because there is so much to talk about in Hateful To be honest, Eight. I, think, I think we could probably do a back-to-back episode, Django and Hateful. I don't know, that seems like it'll be a very long evening. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'd say do an evening watching them first, and then do the, do the, do the recording, maybe. <laughs> Just an interesting note, by the way, on the Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. You know, there's obviously the scene where uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh is playing the guitar and Kurt Russell comes over. Oh, he picks... smashes it, yeah. That was actually an antique guitar. Yes, I did read that. That had been loaned to them by the Gibson Museum. <laughs> and this, the production designers had made a replica to be smashed. But Kurt Russell didn't realise this and destroyed the original guitar. What a, what a silly Billy. Poor he's, old Kurt. He's got money, he can afford to replace it. It's not like he's broke. Dude, this was a this was a priceless antique from the eighteen seventies. See, I've never understood that. When people say priceless, then you can't put a price on it, therefore it's technically worthless. <laughs> Technically, yeah. <laughs> well, on the basis we've now officially been talking for two hours and 15, I think now... I think probably... we've officially run out of ground because we are to most Tarantino yeah. catalogue. Um, but no, but I think that's good, though, because I think he is a director that is worth talking about. Absolutely, dude, absolutely. And I think he's, he's a director we're going to have many more discussions over because, to be honest, I, I've not seen a Tarantino movie I haven't enjoyed. Mm. At least in part. I, I would be willing to give. Um, I would be willing to give Jackie Brown another go. Yeah, I mean, I, I want, at one point we'd have argued being able to do a marathon and you know watch all the movies in one day, but since then he's released more movies, and of course, <laughs> you know, he doesn't make like ninety-minute movies. No, in fact, if anything, Reservoir Dogs is probably the shortest movie he's ever made. I, th- I think it probably is. Um, because I mean, from everything from Pulp Fiction onwards has been at least two hours. Two hours, yeah. And I think I think uh, Hateful Eight was at least three. Hateful Eight was was three hours, three hours actually. 
But here's the thing I, I thought that it's much like um, Wolf of Wall Street. It doesn't feel necessarily three yes, hours long. I agree. Because it keeps you entertained, it keeps you going. Yeah, I, I agree can. with that. And we're going to go back to, to Tarantino's script writing abilities here. The fact that he, he makes it seem, seem like a shorter film is, is all credit to both his writing and his directing skills. Yeah, absolutely. It just flows. It just works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, well, I'm going to call time. Um, so, thank you once again for joining me, Mike. It's always a pleasure having you on the podcast. Always a pleasure to be here, Chris. I look forward to doing many more with you. As you should. Um, and thank you, everyone who is listening, because we know you are listening. I've seen the statistics. And well done. It seems to be a lot of people in, like, Japan and China. So if you are actually listening in Japan, then, hey, thank you for listening. You know, I'd like more people in the UK to listen, but listeners are listeners. It's probably probably, uh, school kids learning how to swear. It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. So, this has been Sunday Afternoon Cinema. I have been Christopher Windsor. He has been Mike Larkin. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please consider following us on SoundCloud and subscribing on iTunes. Uh, We can be found on both systems. Please also listen to the Iconochromatic Film Podcast that I do with Derek Anthony Williams. Every... Well, we're getting to the point now where we don't really have a schedule, so... Just, just keep an eye out. We can be found on Facebook under Iconocratic. Um, do you listen to it just out of interest, Mike? I haven't had the chance to listen to it yet, to be honest, because I, I have been busy as a voice. Then, with with one thing and another, and I'll explain to that once. I'll explain that once we're off the air. But yes, I, w- I, I will get. Actually. I yep. will start listening to that and and taking down notes because it, it might help me with, maybe with my. Uh, my performance. I would be interested in what you want to think. Right, well, yeah, I'm going to call it that. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye, folks. You have been listening to Sunday Afternoon Cinema, which is a recorded podcast. The podcast was hosted by myself and Mike Larkin. The podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Mr. Windsor. If you've liked what you've heard, please consider subscribing on iTunes or following on SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.